seems as though that in the lead up to when Laura went missing, Trudy and Steve were had a, a planned move to Florida. And I was told by another family member that it, it didn't just happen then. It had been in the in the workings for about a year. And they were actively, almost bullying is the word that I would use that they described to me, um, trying to get the whole family to move with them. Were you aware at the time of that um, effort to get all of the Snedeker side of the family and Laura included and um, Brandy to move to Florida? Well, yeah, I... I... I knew something like that was happening because I got a phone call from Laura, you know, uh, and her and my, well, her and my son had separated. And, and, and in fact, oh, to go back into history, our son was in California at oh, 29 pounds. And Trudy, um, after Laura was born in, in uh, Brandy was born in, in California. Trudy went to California and literally made Laura bring Brandy back to the to uh, Indiana, and so that's how the separation really occurred. It wasn't a mutual thing between between uh, Bryce and that's my son and Mm -hmm. and to separate. They were literally picked up and moved. So then, uh, before Laura went missing, it must have been. A week or so, I don't know, some time in there. I had written it down, but I don't know where it is anymore. Um, and she called and said, I want to move up there, up here to where we are, where, where Bryce is. And I said, fine, that'll be good. You know, we talked about her moving and, and, and coming up here. And yeah, you could stay with us for a while and things like that. And then all of a sudden she was gone. Wow, I wasn't. Uh, Brandy had told me the story about Twenty Nine Palms. I wasn't aware that that's actually the moment that they broke up and they were, you know, that she, basically Trudy inserted herself, and then that's how they broke up. I wasn't aware of that. So why don't you explain to me a little bit about where Laura and Bryce's relationship was at the time she went missing, leading up to that? Like, were they still communicating and talking, and you know, wanted to be together? Well, as far as I know, yes, because she called me from Indianapolis or from where her mom and her were living uh, and, uh, yeah, and asked if she could come up here. So it was, if it was, whatever the problem had occurred between uh, them, between Bryce and Laura, I don't know that it was over because I wondered why is she asking to come up here. It seems to me that she wanted to be together with him. And, and I have no, I have no um, actual words that I, that's why I want to come up here. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't use that kind of verbiage. She just said, "I I want to come there and, and live." So it just naturally, my husband's there. So I mean, you know, they weren't divorced, right? And then that seems to be backed up by the fact that I have read um, that there were two calls between Bryce and Laura that night before she went missing. And, and Brandy had told me that's what she believed Bryce and Laura had been discussing because her car was even packed up at the time that she went uh-huh. missing. Yeah, well, I'm sure that they were, and I heard that they had had, Laura and Trudy had had a big argument that I had heard, um, but I don't know anything, you know, then all of a sudden Laura was found some months ago in the field. We have a little insight into Laura Morris's last week, courtesy of the notes from Indiana State Police detectives who were going on interviews with John Munden. Winston Roberts met Laura Morris at Ivy Tech on the 1st of August. 
just about a week before she went missing. She had just begun attending school there. Winston talked to Laura on that first day, but he didn't ask her out. Still, he was interested. So interested, in fact, that he took note when she said that she would be back up at the school on Wednesday, three days later, which would have been the 5th of August. So on Wednesday, Winston showed up, hoping to catch a glimpse of her. As fortune would have it, they met again and Winston made a date with Laura for that very evening. He called Laura about 7.15 that night and she gave him directions. He arrived at the house on Shadeland about 8 or 8.15 and they hung out for about 10 minutes making idle chit-chat. She said that she liked to dance and liked rock music. Laura told him her drink was a Tom Collins. They left Laura's house and went to a place called Piccadilly and there they danced and drank and played some pool. Winston said that she didn't seem too experienced at pool. Together they drank about two or three pitchers of Tom Collins and they left around midnight. Winston would later tell police that Laura never spoke about her ex-husband Bryce having an affair or her having an affair. What she did say was that she hoped that he was being good with Brandy. The child had been staying with him and his parents in Goshen for about a week and Laura missed her very much. Winston said that their conversation never lingered on Bryce and it didn't seem to him that Laura even wanted to get back together with him, but she did mention something about her and Bryce going to Hawaii in January to talk about Brandy. Laura told Winston she was concerned about goofing up on her test from the previous Saturday. She had answered a few questions and then at some point realized that when she was filling in those little circles, she somehow got one line off, so it messed up all the rest of her answers. She had to retake the test on Friday. Laura told him that her mother was coming into town soon and how she loved her, but she could only handle her for a couple of days. Still, she did say she was looking forward to seeing her. Winston said that Laura had told him that her mother was supposed to stay with her sister Brenda. The two were intimate that night, and Winston left around 5 a.m. Thursday, he worked at Upton's Roofing and Repair until about 7 or 7.30 and went straight home and called Laura. They had planned to meet two of Winston's friends at a place called the Banyan Tree in Greenwood and then go see a movie called Heavy Metal. Winston called to tell Laura he was running a little late and he washed up and then went to her house. They headed over to the Banyan Tree, but by the time they got there, it was too late. Winston ran in to look for his friends while Laura stayed in the car, but his friends were nowhere to be seen. He and Laura headed to the movies alone, but when they got there, they realized it was already half an hour into the movie so they left. Laura suggested a place called Patches, and she told him how to get there. They arrived around 9.30 or 10 and stayed for a few hours, and ended up back at her house around midnight. Winston only stayed for 20 or 30 minutes. He said, While we were talking, she said something like, I never have sex on the first date. But then I guess she remembered we already had sex the night before. Then Laura said that she was tired. So Winston said his goodbyes and left. The next day, on Friday, Winston worked at his roofing job until about 6 in the evening, went home and got dressed, and then headed back to Laura's around 8 p.m. They watched a little TV and then they left for the movie that they had missed the night before. On the way to the movie, Laura told Winston a disturbing story that will later become important to this investigation. He said that Laura told him that a guy named Dave Abplanip was outside her house around 2 or 3 in the morning, presumably the previous night when Winston had left around 1 a.m. 
Laura heard a noise, and when she looked outside to check, she saw Abplanip outside. So she went out and asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm just getting some air. What did you do then? Winston asked Laura. She said she locked the doors and the windows, and then she watched TV. Laura told Winston that she didn't trust Abplanip because, quote, he was known to rip shit off. Now keep in mind that Winston had just met Laura less than a week before, and he didn't even know this person named Dave Abplanip. But that is the name that Winston was able to give investigators when they interviewed him after Laura went missing. So, back to the date. The movie let out around 11 p.m., and then they went back to Laura's house. Again, she and Winston fooled around, and he left that morning around 3 or 4 a.m. Laura had told Winston that she had to attend a get-together the next day, which was Saturday, so he didn't call her on that day. She said that her sister and brother-in-law would be there, and it would be boring because she didn't care for him, the brother-in-law. That's Danny. Laura had told Winston that her brother-in-law would be out with the boys and he'd come home drunk, but when she did that, he raised hell so she had to leave. Danny basically confirmed this story in an earlier episode when he said that Laura had come home high one night with Brandy, and he and Brenda were very upset about it. On Sunday, Laura called Winston around 12 or 1 in the afternoon. She wanted him to come over and lay out in the sun with her. They had talked about swimming, but the pool wasn't clean. She said that they didn't really take care of it. When Winston got to the house on Shadeland at about 1.30 or 2, Laura had been out tanning, but she had to go inside because the bees or bugs started bothering her, she said. So instead, they decided to go fishing. But Laura only had one fishing pole, so the two of them headed over to Winston's so he could borrow one from his father. There, Winston introduced Laura to his parents. Then they headed out in search of bait, live worms. They bought some fishing supplies, bobbers and sinkers, and they ended up at Eagle Creek, about 200 yards from the beach. Laura had brought a bottle and some orange juice, so while fishing, it sounds like they were drinking screwdrivers. Laura had told Winston that at the get-together on Saturday, she had met a guy she knew from school, and he asked her out, but she declined. Then she told Winston about how she wanted to run a pinball palace with video games, and she said she even had a guy lined up to furnish the games. She planned to rent a place to run it, maybe in the Greenwood Mall. When he spoke to police later, he said it seemed to him that the plan was in progress and it would be happening soon. Winston said they didn't catch anything and they started to leave around 7 or 7.30 when it got dark. But at some point he realized that he had left something on the log where they had been sitting. But when he walked back to get it, he stepped on something in the water and he cut his right big toe pretty badly. He said that it bled a lot, but they bandaged it up at her place. They watched TV for about a half hour and then they went and talked in Laura's bedroom. This was the first time that Winston had ever been in her room, and he said it was pretty messy. That night, he fell asleep at her house, and he overslept. He had to call his boss and make up a story. He said he had a flat tire, and he'd go directly to his first job, which was east of Indianapolis. But when he left, it started to rain, so he was off the hook. The roofing job was postponed to the next day. Before I talk about that last day that they were together, that last day that Laura would be seen... I wonder if this budding relationship between Winston and Laura takes you back to the times in your life when you had just met someone. It does for me. I remember having this tiny studio apartment and meeting my husband. And from the moment we met, he was there, spending the night, leaving in the wee hours of the morning, going to work, going home to take a shower, and then coming right back the next day. 
and the cycle would begin all over again. All the sex and the wonder and the limitless possibilities that come with meeting someone new and getting to know their sounds and their smells and their quirks. I wish that what had started between Winston and Laura hadn't been so abruptly and jarringly interrupted. Had things gone differently? Had Winston been at that house on Shadeland that night, as he had for every night before except for Saturday, with his car parked outside, announcing to anyone who approached that she wasn't alone? Things may have gone differently. But that's not what happened. That Monday morning, when Winston got home with his roofing job having been rescheduled due to rain, he said he played some guitar and then he went down the street to a friend's house and shot some darts. Laura called him around 2 or 3 in the afternoon. She said she had a couple things to do on the south side, so she thought she'd drop by and see him around 5 o'clock. When she got there, Winston said Laura was a little upset about the fact that her mother was going to stay with her sister instead of her. This detail seems a bit contradictory, with what Danny Chalice said about Laura not wanting to return to the house on Shadeland with Trudy. He said that she appeared to want to stay at their house with them, but other witnesses say Laura was telling them something different, and we'll get to that in a minute. Laura visited with Winston at his house for a little bit, and he introduced her to his brother Warren, and then his friend Scott from down the street came over and met her too. This was the guy that they had plans to meet, along with his girlfriend, at the banyan tree the previous Thursday, but never did. They gave Laura a tour of the house, and she stayed till about 5.30, and then she had to leave. At that time, Winston said that she was driving her green truck, which will be important later. That's apparently not the same vehicle that she drove to the airport. Winston kissed her goodbye, and Laura drove away, and that was the last time he saw her. Tuesday morning, Trudy, Laura's mother, called Upton's Roofing and asked for Winston. She left a message with the secretary, which he got when he returned to the office around 2 or 3 that afternoon. When Winston called Mrs. Snedeker back, she said that Laura was gone and that she had been since early that morning. Have you heard from her? Trudy asked Winston. He said no, he didn't know where she was. Trudy did not mention at the time whether she had already contacted police or not, but she had gotten Winston's number from Laura's address book and she had begun calling names in it that afternoon, once it was clear that Laura was gone and nobody could figure out to where. All of her belongings were still in the house. Nothing was taken. The truck that Laura was driving wasn't her truck. Her truck was in the driveway, all right? She was driving uh, Steve's black truck that he had left up here, all right? Laura's truck would break down a lot, so Laura was driving the other truck. Well, that truck, when we got out to that house, it was full. The whole back of that truck had a camper shell on it, but all Laura's stuff was in that truck. And it wasn't in there when they were at my house in Greenwood earlier that night, or the night before, whatever the case is, when when Trudy got into town. Because they came down, and we all had dinner together. And you saw the truck that night? Yeah. There was a bag in the house that needed to be loaded in the truck. I carried it out and put it in the back of the truck. And the stuff was not in that truck. But when we got to the house the next day after Laura disappeared, that truck was full. There wasn't room to put anything in the back. (laughs) So, that's interesting. Yeah, Laura was going to leave. 
Was she was she driving that night when you guys went out to dinner? She was driving that truck? Yes. Laura was the one doing the driving? Yes. And you guys all piled in? No, I had my own car. You, okay. I rode over with them, met me at, I was playing racquetball, and then I met them, they didn't meet me at the racquetball court, they met me at the restaurant. Gotcha. Uh, York Steakhouse in Greenwood Park Mall. Now, after <laughs> dinner... I'm sorry. After dinner, you went from after dinner. You had racquetball. You met them there. You guys ate, and then after dinner, you went back to your house, and that's when you loaded that in. Correct. Okay. Was Laura packing up to leave? And if so, where was she headed? Police would obviously speak with Bryce Morris, and we will delve more deeply into what he told John Munden. But one thing he did tell police was that Laura called him that night at his parents' house in Goshen, and it was about quarter till eleven. Bryce had his new girlfriend there, Sandra, so he said he would call her back. And he did a few minutes later, and during that conversation, Bryce said that Laura seemed like she was in a good mood. She mentioned the possibility of them getting back together, but Bryce did not feel the same way. He didn't want to get back together. When he was asked if there was anything unusual about the conversation, he said yes. Laura said that her mother was up from Florida, but she wasn't at the house at the time. He wasn't sure what that meant because he would later learn that Trudy had been there, at least according to her. Munden asked him if maybe he misunderstood, and Bryce said no. Laura told me Trudy was at Brenda's house. Munden thought maybe it was possible that Laura was lying to Bryce, in the hopes that he would come over that night. And she knew he wouldn't if her mother was there. That's possible, but then you have Winston telling police that Laura mentioned being frustrated that Trudy was going to stay with her sister Brenda when that wasn't even the case, according to Danny. It's all very confusing. Now, something relevant to this investigation occurred on either the previous Sunday or the Sunday morning before Laura went missing, that day that Laura and Winston went fishing in the afternoon. Unfortunately, it was never nailed down for sure on which day that it occurred. I say relevant, but something of a game-changer, according to John Munden, because he used what occurred to follow this event as part of the basis for his theory that Trudy Snedeker murdered her daughter. Chuck Smith was a former employee of JNS Oil, the Snedeker's business. Chuck knew Laura Morris. He had once driven a truck for the company. According to John Munden, during the time that he worked at JNS Oil, he had a motorcycle accident and ended up busting up his leg pretty bad. Bad enough that he had to wear a brace after that. Munden said that Steve didn't want him around after that because of the liability issue and basically forced him out when he strongly suggested to Chuck that it would be in his best interest to leave. So because he worked there, he knew Laura well. She was also a regular customer at the Coquilene gas station in Greenfield, where Chuck later worked when all this went down. He said that on the Sunday before Laura went missing, she drove into the station in her green truck with a sketchy-looking dude. Chuck described this man as having long hair, a tattoo on his arm, and one of those trucker-like wallets with a chain. Laura, who's normally friendly with Chuck, doesn't speak to him at all. No niceties, just asks for $10 worth of gas, and that's it. So Chuck goes ahead and he pumps the gas, and when he's finished, he walks around to the driver's side to Laura, and it's notable that she was driving. But the passenger jumps out in a manner that Chuck describes as grouch-like and says he'll pay for it. He has no other words with Laura, but says that she's staring at him in the rearview mirror as they pull away. 
Now, remember, she's the one driving. That will be important a bit later. But the whole situation seemed odd, and it must have seemed more ominous to Chuck when he sees on TV that Laura Morris has gone missing. He thinks back, and he tries to remember if it was that Sunday right before she went missing, or it was the Sunday before. He feels pretty sure it was one of those two Sundays. And since he knows the Snedegers personally, he goes to their house the next day after seeing her face on the 11 o'clock news. He figures it might be important information. Now, Steve was not there that day, but Chuck spoke to Trudy, and he said that her eldest son, Joe, was also there. He told them what he saw. Chuck didn't go to police because he figured that her family would pass that along. Well, that didn't happen. It seems like that information was specifically kept from John Munden. But he did end up hearing it. Chuck's name was on the list of JNS Oil employees that Munden was slowly running down to interview. So he finally gets with him, and by the questions that he's asking, it's clear to Chuck that John Munden was never given the information that he gave to Laura's mom and her brother. So Chuck repeats what he remembers from the encounter at the Cochlane gas station. And after that, John Munden stomps off to the Snedeker house. Again, Steve's not there, but Munden says that Joe and Trudy were there. So he asks them why the hell they didn't share this information. First, Trudy said, oh yeah, I forgot. When Munden presses her further, she says, we think he made it up. So, obviously Munden thinks we is Joe and Trudy, and that they had both decided to withhold this information. Unless you believe that the we refers to Steve. But, according to John Munden's theory of the case, he believed Trudy kept this information from Steve. She specifically asked him not to mention what would follow. And this is important to the story, because it's one of the details that John Munden refers to as evidence suggesting that Trudy killed her daughter. It is also how John Munden decides that it was Trudy, not Steve, that somehow got rid of Chuck Smith behind Steve's back. So here's how all of that played out. A very angry John Munden, after learning that Trudy and her oldest son kept information about his case from him, sets Chuck Smith up for a polygraph test about what he saw. Chuck passes. But the next event that occurred related to Chuck Smith happened a few months later, in early 1982, February or March. Suddenly, Trudy is really interested in getting a hold of Chuck Smith. She starts hounding John Munden for Chuck's unlisted number. And folks, you're not going to believe this but he did eventually give in. She wore him out by insisting that they wanted to offer Chuck a job. They felt so sorry for poor Chuck. All the trouble that he'd been through. He lost his job because he was cooperating with police, Trudy said. He was taking polygraphs and being hypnotized. Oh yeah, Munden hypnotized him. So, according to Munden, after multiple episodes of Trudy hounding him, he relented. He would later say this to an Orlando Sentinel reporter. Dumbass me gives the number out. She looked at me with those cold, glassy eyes and made the remark, Steve doesn't have to know about this. I mean, that's basically a scene right out of a movie, right? First, Steve Snedeker tells Munden he's headed out of state to shake down a witness and Munden doesn't do a thing about that. There's no, hey, Steve, why don't you let me handle this? And then he gives out the phone number of another witness. I bet you guys can tell what's coming based on the moody background music. A couple days later, Munden gets a very pissed off call from Chuck Smith, who wants to know why the hell 
he gave the Snedegers his number. Munden, who I now picture as a kid with dirty knees, toying at the sand as his parents read him the riot act, says, Well, they told me they were going to offer you a job, and you said you needed a job. Poor Chuck. He had no idea what was coming for him. That call happened on a Tuesday. By Thursday, Chuck's wife is calling John Munden, hysterical, because she can't find Chuck. And now they're all pretty sure that Chuck's been Snedegard, just like Tony Lambert. On March 27, 1982, a bus ticket was bought for Chuck. It was waiting for him in Indianapolis, where his father-in-law drove him and watched him board a bus, headed toward his new job at John Rogers Trucking in Knoxville, Tennessee a job that apparently Trudy Snedeker had recommended him for. After that freaked-out call from his wife, police looking for Chuck Smith went to the bus station to talk to the agent who sold the ticket. And reminiscent of the big reveal in the movie The Usual Suspects, when we learn that Verbal Kent has pulled parts of the Kaiser Soze origin story from the bottom of his coffee cup and the cork board directly behind the head of the detective who was interrogating him, the police investigating Chuck Smith had a similar epiphany when they met the agent who sold the ticket. His name? John Rogers. Surprise, surprise. There was no such trucking company called John Rogers Trucking in Knoxville. What's that famous line from The Usual Suspects? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Do you remember how you were told um, or how you found out that Laura was missing? Who told you? Do you remember? I don't remember exactly. It's just that she wasn't in communication with us anymore. So something happened. But I, I you know, I never, I don't remember a formal she's missing. I, don't, I must have gotten one, but I don't remember that. The, what did happen then, this is unbelievable. Munden mm -hmm. from Indianapolis from there. Uh -huh. uh, Green, what, where is this? Greenfield. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Munden, uh, we we lived in a, a house, a small little house, well, a two-story house in in well on the same property. If you can, if you can Skype us, you can see where our house is. And if you do it real quick, you'll see our house is in the back. But on US twenty, there's a blue house. Uh -huh. And and that's the house we lived in. And we woke up one morning after Laura was missing, with Munden in our bedroom upstairs oh. and looking for Laura. So he just was, went into he, your house without asking? Yeah, well, well, he not. We, we were upstairs. My husband and I were upstairs in the bedroom. Bryce was staying there at our house, too, then. And he was downstairs, and he let him in. And he said, no, Laura's not here. Munden said, as I recall, Munden said, well, can I look around? He went, went through the whole house, and he came in our bedroom. We woke up to Munden walking in our bedroom. Oh, that's not good. Wow. Okay, so so I called the local police, and I said, this is a detective, I think, from down in Indianapolis, and he came in our house, and he did, was he supposed to ask you? And he said, they said, absolutely. They, he should have come to the police department, and we would have come to your house together. And that didn't happen. Did you get a sense that they were looking at Bryce at that time hard to make sure he had no um, no involvement in Laura's yeah, going missing? Yeah, yeah. I well afterwards, I didn't. It didn't. I mean, it, it 
that they came to look for Laura was one thing, but since Laura was missing, I imagined it was just a natural feeling that both my husband and I felt that they were also looking at where was Bryce then. Right, and that's common, but it's not common to walk into someone's house and start (laughs) rummaging around without a search warrant. Right, (laughs) for sure. And and letting the police in that that area know that you're there. Right, exactly. They should have done that. Tell me what your perception is of how it was for him in those days after Laura went missing. What was going on with him, and how was he reacting to all this? Well, we were all terrified, yeah. you know. Well, where is she? Well, where is she? Well, maybe she went here. Maybe she went, maybe she went to Grandma Fagnano in Ohio, or, you know, just all over. Uh, that kind of conversation of the possibility of where she could be. But I did expect her to show up because she had called. You know, I thought, well, she's gonna, she's just hiding out and gonna show up, and then that never happened. So. Yeah, and it would seem, uh, I mean, even if she was going somewhere else, maybe for safety to get away from Trudy or something, it doesn't seem like she'd be going anywhere for very long uh, without her no. daughter. <laughs> yeah. right, right. That's that was my concept is that that she was trying to get back with Bryce, and that really ticked off Trudy. So because that's I, the. So you believe you have you. Do you feel that that theory about an argument that took place between her and Trudy that led to maybe an accident and then some Trudy getting help um, disposing of the body, is that a theory that you you think is a good possibility? My, my concept, my, under, my feeling, my feeling is that Trudy got really mad because she could do that easily and shot her daughter. That's what I believe. I think that I think that she was just really angry that Laura was talking to us and that she was going to not go to Florida. You know, she was coming here and not going to Florida. And I yeah, and I know that Trudy did was known to have a, a weapon. They didn't learn that till later, as far as the, the mm-hmm. caliber and all that. The, there are a couple facts that I've learned about the case that concern me that don't really line up with that. One was that, and I, I, I hate to be specific about you know specific things that happened but she was shot three times in the head and that doesn't appear to be an accident you know that's not what you would see in an accident where if maybe so let's say trudy gets upset she pulls out the gun just to be threatening and i could see where a struggle would involve one shot but three seems excessive and all three in the same spot and the reason that i'm sorry she was pointing a gun. Yes. It, well, it would have to have been three shots yeah. in the yeah. same. But then there are some early um, news when they did end up about eight months later finding Laura. Um, Munden himself, the day after they did an, a preliminary autopsy, told reporters that he believed she had been killed in that field, nowhere else in the field. So that sort of also goes against any, you know, a possible theory that she was something happened in that home. Do you know, do you understand? And I think that's one of the reasons why Brandy wants to look into this. And and we're going to get the documents to see if the facts line up with, because all we have are Munden's theories, to be honest. He's the only person that spoke out to the press. And so I feel that some of these theories don't add up. And just with what we know. And so it's always good to go by the facts and look at the reports and see, you know, so... So how long was it, like, after Laura went missing, did she immediately go to stay with you, or was she with Trudy for some period of time, or how did that work? After she went missing, who was who was uh, caring for Brandy? For Brandy? Me. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. My husband and I. 
we were we were well Bryce had her for a little while um he had he'd gotten a house and he had her for a little while and um and then um and it was he, he was just not prepared to be a uh, this was more of a family situation. I had a child too, and yeah. they and they knew each other. And uh, Richie and 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 Brandy, you know, they were two years apart. So it was more it was more of a family situation here than a bachelor, you know. Right. And, yeah. And so um, we just yeah he agreed to uh, let us raise her here, and he'd pay us some money rent, you know, for every once in a while, and and he would try to do the right thing. But he was he was not. He was not, he really was not stable after Laura was gone. That was just not, yeah, that was, yeah. he was very emotional. I imagine that would have really yeah, thrown him yeah. for a loop. Um, so is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't talked about that, that you've learned over the years? Or, like, I'm very interested in, in you know, Steve Snedeker. What were your impressions of him? Oh, Did you spend any oh, time God. around him at all? Uh, he terrified me. I, I t- we never had guns in the house other than a hunting gun that my husband never used anymore because he didn't like shooting deer anymore. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, Steve came in to the house. If you ever look, if you ever Google us on Earth thing, uh-huh. into that blue house. He came in when brought Trudy back, uh, brought Laura back one day, and um, he said, "Well, you know that Brandy does not like Rich, our son." I said, really? You know, I didn't know that. She had, no, he, she hates him. She just hates him. Now she's in what? She's two years older than him, so she's in third grade. Richie would been in first or something like that. That that age difference is why I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. It scared us so bad my husband went out and bought a handgun. So Steve that, came uh, to your house bringing Brandy back home after a visit and, and yeah, said that yeah, he hated yeah. And But no, no reason? Did you ask Brandy about it? No, she was young, and you know she didn't act that way t- towards him, towards Rich. She didn't ever acted like she hated him. Huh. You know, she they, if she did, I didn't know it. You know, typical brother and sister argument kind of things that that kids do. Right. But no, you know there was there was I mean, as Brandy though when but when Brandy came back. It took a long time to get to normal because she was always bossy and arrogant and fighting. That was the one thing that we noticed. And even even into high school, she was she was uh, wanting to be a fighter. I mean, she, she'd go out with a with a boy and she'd beat up on him. <laughs> yeah. know, we'd, hear later, we'd hear later that she'd slap him or something. Well, maybe he deserved it, you know. But anyway, uh, she she you know, it it would. I was getting so I wondered whether I should even let her go, whether I should get a maybe a restraining order or something about not without supervision or something because it was she she was really not the same person. It had a big effect on her to go back down there. And she did, you know, she did express to me that they spoiled her rotten, even above all the other kids, and that it yeah. did give her an attitude. She's very well aware of that. She said, oh, okay. you know, okay. she, absolutely. Yeah. She's very, Brandy's very self-aware, I will tell yeah. you. She said, yeah. I was yeah. just, you know, I they spoiled me like crazy. Uh, even as a kid, she recognized that they were doing that, yeah. which is messes yeah. with a kid's head when, when you've the yeah. one kid that they're sure. throwing sure. attention to. It's not going to have a positive effect, you yeah. know. Well, huh. and then when Steve died... Um, Brandy wanted to go to the funeral, and that was down in Ohio. And and um, 
so we went. We took her down, and it was scary as all get out. The cops were all over the place. I can't even begin to tell you. I wish you could get us. How many cops' cars were there, Richard? There were just cops? Four. Four? Yeah, yeah. We could identify four unmarked cars. And then they told us that when they got Steve's car, there was $80,000 in cash in the trunk. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this, is, this is really, you know, it's this nuts. would really make a good... But right, it is. It's a crazy saga. It is a lot. Yeah. It just that's I think one of the first things that attracted attracted me to the case because it's it there's so much. It's I mean, it has taken me two or three weeks just to wrap my head around the family dynamics before I yeah. can even go through the facts. And that's why you, like you and other people have been so helpful because I needed to understand sort of the players in this. You know, yeah. before yeah. what you know, Steve and Trudy sound very controlling. What do you? What is your perception of their relationship? Like how they interacted, Steve and Trudy themselves? Well, you know, I think that he was having affairs and she knew it. Mm. Now, what made me know that? I can't remember. Something, something, whether it was something somebody else said or Brandy, I don't remember how that came. That might just be a rumor. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm going to be clear on that. But right. that he, he was more involved in. And I would think that that would, if you saw Steve and his attitude, you would th you would think that he would be an abuser. He would. Yeah. Did they yeah. fight? Did they openly fight in front of people, Trudy and Steve? Not that I'm aware of, but it was. You could tell that they were. If they like, maybe when they came into our house, that maybe they were growling at each other, kind of, kind of. But yeah, you know, just yeah. I don't think they got along well at all, and I don't think he trusted her at all. Or she trusted him. It was it was kind of a mutual thing. It wasn't it wasn't a healthy relationship. That's how I would put it. I guess they were just yeah. It was I love you kind of right. my husband. Yeah, it wasn't. It, they, they didn't show that kind of affection towards each other. I think they were more business inclined and money inclined than than human inclined and, and having ethics and empathy for anybody. You know, if they if you weren't in their realm of what is right, you were wrong, always wrong. And that always scared me about Brandy, that maybe she would learn that, but I don't think they, that she kind of did, that she was, you know, more astute than that. Yeah. But, yeah, it's scary. It's uh, who they are, were. Uh, they talked about, you know, the, the business that he had, I think it, where it was in Florida, where he was picking up oil at gas stations and in tanks and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in storage tanks and, and buying it from used uh, repair places and saying, I guess they made a lot of money doing that. Right, in the Just oil recycling. Well, I... Yes, they there was an oil recycling business, and and they, that's exact you exactly explained it right. They would pick up old used oil and then yeah. and s yeah. sift it through some sort of clay sieves or something, and then take the sediment out and resell it. But yeah. from everyone I've talked to, that that business would not have generated the money that they had and there are there are no. people that are telling me that they believe that those businesses were fronts for drugs they were um they were drug laundering money laundering businesses basically yeah 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 is that That's something not, you heard as well uh something that i I knew that they couldn't make that kind of money and that they had this money long before this business occurred. They had a lot to hide. 
I, I really, yeah. And there was something about Texas. They moved from Texas. I can't remember what that was. Yeah, there. It, it does appear that at some point they were actually in the 70s running from the FBI. And, and I was told that the family was living under assumed names. Yes. Yeah, and running. And then they eventually were caught in Texas. But um, just a quote that I read from Munden, because I haven't been able, I have actually also sent for records from the FBI. And they've got some records, too. It takes a little bit longer. And right now a lot of things are shut down because right. of the right. coronavirus. So, uh, But we may learn a little bit more about that. But apparently they were running from the FBI and there was also a, an officer involved shooting in a and a tractor trailer theft ring or something so there's a yeah. lot in the 70s even before all everything else started happening it just seems like they were into a, a bunch of really unscrupulous yeah. things their whole lives mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's exactly, and I think that, and I think that Trudy knew as much as Steve, and he knew, and they were uh, uh, wondering, you know, afraid of each other. I really think that they, you know, who had more power is how I think I would look at it. Who's more in control? But I really think that Steve did not know that Trudy was probably or could have been involved in, in Laura's death, um, and uh, I, I really think he did not know that until so now the body count is up to three, Laura and two of Steve Snedeker's former associates. Steve Snedeker managed to move through life, trailing bodies and missing people behind him like breadcrumbs. Big, honking, boulder-like crumbs that law enforcement in multiple states, including the feds, were never able to follow to a satisfying conclusion. And when that happens, you have to ask yourself why. Sometimes it's because they couldn't put together enough evidence on any one of their suspects. And sometimes it's because they're following the wrong crumbs. Detective Sergeant John Munden's theory of the case would eventually be this. Trudy and her daughter fought over Laura's planned reconciliation with her husband, Bryce. And Trudy accidentally killed her during an argument. A truck that Laura had driven the night before, her father's dark pickup truck, was found packed with Laura's belongings in the driveway. Laura was found with three 25 caliber slugs in her head. Trudy was known to carry a 25 caliber gun. Trudy also apparently lied about her reasons for wanting to get a hold of Chuck Smith. Which I don't doubt, by the way. The Snedegers lied about everything, and one thing's for sure. If you make it your business to lie about things, on a regular basis, you can pretty much expect that it's going to come back and bite you in the ass at some point. But the question that we're going to want to look at is this. Did Trudy Snedeker get bit a lot harder than she deserved? Did John Munden get it wrong? Or did she, in fact, kill her daughter? John Munden believed that Trudy's father helped her dispose of the body. He said that he traced a mysterious overnight trip by her father to the Howard Hughes Motel, not far from the Snedeker home, after a call from Trudy on the day that Laura vanished. But as far as I can see, John Munden did not get the records for the Shadeland Drive home, so he was never able to connect how Trudy had contacted her father in the pre-cell phone era. Why didn't Munden get those records? Well, As you'll hear in his Indiana State Police debrief, instead of immediately filing for a warrant to get them, he asked Trudy to provide them. 
and Trudy promised to furnish them. But a few weeks later, when he followed up, again Trudy said, oh, I forgot. So after that, he secured a warrant for the records, but by that time, they were gone. Stay tuned.